Good morning. Welcome. It's such a joy and gift to be together again this morning, studying God's word. As we begin, let us pray. Gracious God, you are indeed the solid rock on which we stand. Christ, our Lord and Savior, your word made flesh guides us in all our ways, as does your holy word, your scriptures. And so we pray, Lord, as we come to them this morning, that you would open our eyes, illumine our hearts and minds and souls to receive your truth, to see you fresh and anew, that we might more fully reflect your goodness, your nature, and your character in all we do. Pray that you would encourage, uplift, uphold, Exhort and bound to yourself more closely, each of us, in this time. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are continuing on in First Peter, still in chapter 1. After this beautiful beatitude of praise in the beginning that Peter starts off with, which is what it is, a beatitude of praise, where Peter blesses God the Father for the rich salvation we have in Jesus Christ through whom we have been born again into a living hope and an assured inheritance. Those are the promises, born again into a living hope and an assured inheritance. In Peter, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 3-12, there is this shift in verse 3 signaled by the therefore. This word, this word, therefore, always has us going back to what has preceded, right? Because it's like, because of all this, therefore. So here, we look back and we see the salvation that has been held secure for us in hope. Because of all that, then we look forward to this is what it means. That's what a therefore means. So in verse 13, with the therefore, Peter begins to unpack the truth of our salvation, theology, then for what it means for our life, ethics. This is the same, I seem to get these sections in our letters um, in Colossians 3. Ethics always follows theology. Theology, you are, this is who you are, now be. This is the exhortation, be what you are. We are to live into the reality of what God has done in our dying with Christ to sin and our having been raised up again with him in new life. And so in our section today, verses 13 through 25, our salvation, the fact that we've been born into a living hope and have an insured inheritance means four things specifically here. There are four exhortations that Peter gives. First, an exhortation to hope, verse 13. Second, an exhortation to holiness, verses 14 through 16. Third, an exhortation to fear God, fear of God, 17 through 21, and then an exhortation to love one another in verses 22 through 25. So hope, holiness, fear of God, love one another. Because of time, we're only dealing with three out of the four this morning, hope, holiness, and fear of God. So first, hope. Christians, we've been called people of hope. What does it mean that we are people of hope? 
What does Peter mean when he says we have been born again into a living hope in verse 3? And then here in verse 13, set your hope fully. It's interesting, um, and I just realized I forgot it, so hold on a minute. I'm going to start again. Uh, so the week that uh, we were reading about a living hope, that same, it was literally the day I was studying it. Right before that, I picked up a devotional that I'm doing this year by Henry Nouwen um, that illumined for me what it means to hope. And so I wanted to read this section for you. The, the passage is entitled, entitled, Living with Hope. Optimism and hope are radically different attitudes. <clears throat> Optimism is the expectation that things, the weather, human relationships, the economy, the political situations, and so on, will get better. Expectations that things are just going to get better. Hope is the trust that God will fulfill God's promises to us in a way that leads to true freedom. The optimism, optimist speaks about the concrete changes that need to take place in the future, The person of hope lives in the moment with the knowledge and trust that all of life is in good hands. We are not optimists. We are people of hope. Knowledge and trust that all of life is in good hands. Because we're held by God. A God who's made promises to us. So hope is not simply to wish for, uh, I wish it wouldn't rain tomorrow, or I dream about, I dream about having a successful career. It is confident expectation. It is the assurance that what we hope for will certainly, it will surely come to pass. Now how can we be so confident and assured? Our hope, our future hope, is based on what has already happened in the past. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our confident expectation from the future comes from knowing and trusting the God who has come as a human being and died for us and most importantly, rose again. Jesus' resurrection is the grounds for our hope. That's why Paul says in Corinthians, we're fools. If Christ didn't rise again, we're fools for what we believe. It is the grounds for our hope. It has happened. Christ rose again, and that sets the hope, secures the promise for everything to come. So um, for my 43rd birthday, I got a tattoo. Now, I know there's various opinions about tattoos, but let me just share. Um, It's on my wrist. It says it is well with a cross on it. There's a story behind this in my life if you want to hear about it later. But it is well. It's on my wrist forever now. Am I just a blind optimist? Am I delusional? (laughs) Am I in denial about the pain and the brokenness and the suffering that's in this world. Because I put on my wrist, it is well. And the truth is, it's not. The experiences we have in this life tell us it's not well. There is a lot of things in life that are not well. So I got this tattoo on my wrist because I'm claiming this truth in hope. When I look at this tattoo, and I got it right here so I can see it every day, 
I remind myself that I am being held in the love and the care and the good purposes of God our Father as revealed in Jesus Christ. That cross below really matters to me. And because this is true, it is well. All is well. Because redemption and restoration is now being enacted in my life and yours. And one day it will come to full expression. The full expression we see in in Revelation 21 where every tear will be wiped away. That is living hope. The hope that leans into this tension that we live into. the, The now and not yet tension. I know you've heard Alan talk about This tension in between the times of Christ's first coming and second coming. We live in this liminal space, friends. This liminal space of the unfinished, right? The brokenness, the suffering, the not rightness, the not well in our lives. And we live in that it is finished that Christ spoke on the cross. It is indeed finished. Jesus has defeated the powers of death and darkness and sin. His resurrection proves that. So our hope is assured. We're simply in the space of waiting, that liminal space of waiting, for that truth to be fully realized. One commentator put it this way, and it was so helpful, I wanted to read it. Peter orients his readers to a future eschatology, that just means study of future things, future eschatology of a grace that has been fully guaranteed by past events of the redeeming death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's been fully guaranteed and it is fully present, but not fully realized. So it is fully present It's true, we have received grace. It is well. We have a salvation secured for us, but not fully realized. There is a fullness of grace to be revealed one day. That's what that one little phrase, I think, means. Set your hope fully. And then Peter qualifies this expectation to hope with two phrases. In the ESV, it's preparing your minds for action. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. It literally in the Greek is gird up the loins of your mind. Now that's an interesting metaphorical image to get around yourself. So in the summer, I love wearing maxi skirts, those big, long, right, skirts. They are so amazingly comfortable. Um, but not so practical when I go out in my backyard and try to water or get in my garden. And so I've gotten in the habit of, like, getting my skirt up and tying it at my hip just to get it up and out of the way so I can move and um, do what I need to do, do the work I need to do. This is exactly for women what this phrase is referring to. In the ancient Middle East, and still today, men would wear these long tunics, right? And when they needed to prepare themselves for hard work or even battle, they would gather up the hem of their tunic and either tuck it in at the waist or tie it. They would gird up their loins, tie up. So this phrase is used, actually, pretty frequently in the Bible. And it is exactly the same phrase that Peter uses here. Today, we might say rolling up our sleeves. To communicate the same idea, right? And this is, in fact, how the message translates this verse. Peterson says, so roll up your sleeves. Put your mind in gear. 
It means to get ready for work, even battle. Now, Peter is applying it to our minds and in relation to hope. Set your hope fully on the grace to come. Preparing your mind for the action of hoping. Peter is speaking of a mental resolve to hope. And sometimes we have to mentally work at it, don't we? We have to to hope and to live into hope. And in light of that hope, we have to recognize it, remind ourselves of it, set our mind upon it, act on that reality. Live as people of hope, even when it might seem crazy. My tattoo is my way of girding up the loins of my mind. And I remind myself by literally rolling up my sleeve and showing myself what I believe. Now, I'm not saying y'all should go get tattoos, please. (laughs) That is not what I'm advocating here. But what might be your own rolling up of the sleeves of your mind, preparing your mind for the action of living hope? What might that look like for you on a daily basis? Our verses are one of the ways we do this. Right? I have them in the bathroom because we sit there for a while at times during the day and where I do dishes and I want my children to see that, right? So our verses are one way we do that. Listening to Christian music is another way I do that for myself. Share ideas with each other, how you gird up the loins or roll up the sleeves of your mind. I'd love to hear what you guys are doing. How are you doing the hard work of leaning into hope? The second phrase is sober-minded. It's how it's translated in ESV. Or other translations say self-controlled. Which further qualifies and explains how to set our hope fully on the grace to come. Uh, the image that's brought to mind, it is literally word sober in the Greek, is uh, brings to mind not drinking, right? When one is drunk, they have no control of themselves. They're not seeing clearly. To be sober means that you are functioning from a place of clarity. One definition of sober-minded from the Greek, um, from Strong's Concordance, I loved this. Free from illusion. Free from illusion. And that's what Jesus offers us, right? Free from illusion. Freedom to live into the people we truly are, into the really real of life. Not the illusion that sin offers us where pursuing our passions and our impulses and our self that that's what brings fulfillment, because it doesn't. That is an illusion, and it's an illusion that most of the world lives in. It's a lie. When we come to Christ, our minds are renewed. We see clearly for the first time who we are and who God is and what we are made for. We are to live in the freedom of that truth, free from illusion, clarity of mind, be Sober. So preparing your minds for action, right? Get ready to do the hard work. Being sober-minded, thinking clearly and being focused. Live into truth, not the illusion. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've made it through one verse. On to the next section. I loved this verse and unpacking it, so I hope it's okay I took that much time with it. It was amazing to me when you get into the nitty-gritty of what these statements and ideas and these words in the Greek mean. So Peter then continues, set your mind fully on the hope we have received. Remember what's really real. Now, as obedient children, obedient, at the root of this word is to hear. Literally, there are two words that make up obedience. 
the Greek word hupo, which means under, and akuo, here. Hupo, akuo. So obedience literally means submit yourself to what you hear. So my kids, this is a frequent event in my house right now, and I'll say something. It's time to come to the table for dinner, and they don't listen. So I say it again. And then maybe another time with my voice raised. And this is in particular one of my child will say, okay, I hear you. Like, mad at me, um, which really triggers me. Uh, so I have, take a deep breath. I have been explaining to them the concept of what it means to listen. What I'm talking about when I say something is I want you to hear what I say and then act, right? What I want is obedience, right? Not just the taking in of words. To say I hear you but not do what I act is not listening, right? It might get into your brain, but what I want is it for it to go in your brain and then move your body. This is what obedience is. And unless the gospel, unless the word of God connects with our life and we place ourselves under the hearing of it, we are not living in obedience. And our obedience is grounded in relationship as obedient, listening children. Children, children, a father-child relationship is what Peter paints here. So this is not the military where we fall into line and do as we are commanded. This is not even a student-teacher relationship, do the assignment, make the grade, right? Follow the classroom code. Though Jesus is our teacher and we are his disciples, that word literally means a learner, but That is true, but deeper than that, at the core of our relationship with God, is it is a relationship of father and child. And that grounds the core of our obedience comes from this fact that we're his children. He's our father. And out of love, we follow in obedience. So, as obedient children, in right relationship with your father, Peter lays out what our obedience should look like. And he expresses this two ways, negatively at first and then positively. So first, negatively. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed. This is the same word used in Romans 12.2. And it's actually the only two places in the New Testament where conformed is used. It means to pattern or shape, to form your life Or your life's actions after. So here, do not pattern your life or your actions after the world. After the passions of your former ignorance. Because before Christ, we were in ignorance, right? We lived in illusion, unaware of God and his ways. We lived in that illusion, blinded place. Blinded by our sin. And in our ignorance... Our passions dictated what we did. But now, Peter says, as God's children, the passions of our former ignorance should no longer dictate the way we live. They should no longer be the pattern by which we live our lives. I loved how the message said this. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, doing just what you felt like doing. You didn't know any better then. But you do now. Now, 
He says then in the positive, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Verses 15 and 16. Notice holiness is not about following rules, but again is set in the context of relationship. We are to be holy because we are in this special relationship with God as father and child. And as his children, we are to reflect his nature and character. You be holy because I'm holy and you belong to me now. So we've been having a lot of conversations in our home, especially with our older girls, about technology and the fact that we're not allowing what other families allow in terms of when they get devices or what kind of things they do. And Derek and I find ourselves saying often to them, I know it might be hard to understand this when you see your friends doing certain things, but we're the Smiths. We call ourselves the Smith Six, because there's six of us. We're the Smith Six, and this is just what the Smith Six do. When we talk to our kids about our values, we define it in terms of this is what the Smiths do. This is who you are. And because you're in this family, this is what you do also. It's the same thing here. We are to be holy like God because we are God's children. Our desire and motivation to change our character, the behaviors we engage in and don't engage in, our actions and lives, all of this is because we are part of God's family. We are in Christ. We are little Christs, and this is just what Christians do. We're called to be holy. The call to be holy here is not to follow a set of rules, Per se, although we do have the big ton, right? (laughs) But it's more about reflecting the character and nature of the God with whom we have a relationship with. It's a call to have our lives be in harmony with God. This idea of harmony came out of uh, one of the words in the lexicon for understanding conform. So this is more of a dance This call to holiness, where we learn to mirror and be in step with God rather than a to-do list. And then it says, in all of conduct, this word conduct means one's whole way of life. So this isn't just about like our church things and the church things we do, but in all of life. The holiness to which we are called as Christians who are in Christ, is to be consistent with the character of God as revealed in the covenant to Israel and ultimately as is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You are, now be. This is always the exhortation in these ethical sections in the New Testament letters. You are God's child. You are part of God's family. Now live like it. Okay, one more section. Fear of God. Peter goes on to say that if you call on God as Father, right? So this this image of Father too, right? It is intimate. It is, it is a love relationship where we are safe and secure and held, right? But then Paul Peter goes on to say, if you call on God as Father, you're also calling on the one who judges Impartially, And he brings up this idea of God as judge. There will be a judgment. Peter tells us later in uh, chapter 4, verse 17, that there will be a judgment and it will begin first with the family of God and those then those beyond the family of God. Now, we can sort of cringe at the idea of judgment or God as judge. Um, 
in particular, you know, in the world, this idea of God of wrath, God of judgment. Uh, but we don't actually, if you think about it, we don't actually want a world where there is not judgment or where God doesn't judge. Now, he judges impartially, which means with absolute integrity and honesty. So God's judgment is always tied to his justice. When God judges, he will do it with justice. And justice is the act of setting things right. We do not want a world, a reality, an ending to this existence where things are not set right. We do not. The truth, this truth, that our God is a God of justice, you can go read Isaiah 30, 18, um, beautiful passage where it says this, the Lord is a God of justice actually holds me steady. It is actually one of my internal grounding places in a world of suffering and pain and, and honestly pure evil. When you read about some of the things going on in the world, we do not want these wrongs to not be righted. God as the just God who will right every, absolutely every wrong and I don't understand how that's going to happen in light of some of the things that have happened and occurred in our world. God will do it. I do not know how, but it will happen. That truth holds us steady in this not yet place that we live in. It is so important that we not only call God Father, but we claim him as judge of the world and of our lives. But, but, moving on, it also instills some healthy fear. God is aware of everything. That is absolutely comforting and completely terrifying. He will one day bring everyone to account. We read some of these passages. If you did the homework, there were some great sections on looking up God as Father and God as Judge. He will one day right every wrong. Peter, calling on the one we call his Father, who is also Judge, then says, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Remember, this is not our home. So we were asked to define fear in our books, if you got to that section. Um, And I actually think it holds two meanings here. I think it does hold this meaning of a bit of terror, healthy, healthy fear, being afraid. Um, Because here we are to, we're talking about, he's talking about obedience here, okay? So this is in the context of obedience. Here we are to obey because we fear the discipline of the Lord. We are part of God's family and we enjoy the privileges of that. But we must not become presumptuous that disobedience will pass unnoticed or undisciplined. Just like with our own kids, right? The message paraphrases us this so helpfully, I think. It says, you call out to God for help and he helps because he's a good father in that way. But don't forget, he's also a responsible father. And he won't get, let you get by with sloppy living. So I think there's a healthy sense of fear of discipline here as we understand fear. And I also think there is this aspect of fear as reverence and awe. A deep sense of who God is and what he has done that makes us go, wow, you are amazing. The message goes on to say, your life is a journey you must travel with deep consciousness of God. And I think that's one of the ways that Peterson is translating fear here. 
This is fear, a deep consciousness of who God is and what God has done, which Peter unpacks in verses 18 through 21 here. That leaves us in awe and leads us to respond in obedience. That leads us to let ourselves be pulled into a way of life. This is your verse for the week. Shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. That's Peterson's translation of be holy because I am holy. And this touches on the second motivation for a life of obedience, the nature of redemption. So Peter unpacks here that we have been ransomed. We have been bought back, reclaimed from the empty or futile ways we inherited from our forefathers. That's simply being human and sin. Through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. This word ransom means to purchase someone's freedom by paying for it, a ransom. And it was used in secular contexts of the purchasing of the freedom for a slave or, listen to this, a hostage held by an enemy. Doesn't that sound like sin? Paying a ransom to buy the freedom of someone being held hostage by an enemy. Christ is our rescuer. He rescued us from a life of sin that held us hostage, but at great cost. The cost of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world. As a result of being in Christ, of dying and rising again with him, we are now back in God's ownership as his family. Not only we were bought back, but then we're placed in the status of daughter. Because of this redemption, this amazing rescue from death to life, why would we not want to obey the one who is our rescuer and our loving father? So Peter ends this section with the reminder that the God they fear as judge is also the God who has secured their salvation has raised Christ in glory, and thus the one in whom they can place their trust and hope. We're back again to hope. Knowledge and trust that all of life, our lives, the lives of our loved ones, all of life, this entire cosmos, is held in the good hands of our loving Father. Let us pray. Gracious God, loving Father, righteous judge. As we take in these words, how can we not be in awe, in fear and reverence of you, of what you have done, of the lengths to which you have gone to buy us back and not just buy us back and put us in some little place in your household, but to put us in the place as your children, And you love us as your children, both in giving us all the privileges and blessings of being your child and also in correcting us when we're wrong in places where we still need to hear and act and act the ways in which you call us to live. So God, we do pray that you would help us lean into hope, hold on to the truth this assured confidence that all will be well, all will be well one day. 
that it is well now because Christ has come and died and rose again. We pray that you would help us to know how to follow you as obedient children. I pray, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, that you would bless these women as they discuss these truths in their group, that you would bring new insight, greater joy, a deeper commitment to you and life with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.